This is a CBC Podcast. Really nice outside. Yeah. Oh, it's cold though. Get the blanket. You can actually see the stars because we're not in the city, huh? Yeah, like normally if you look up, you can see a couple big bright stars, but now it's just like the entire sky is polka dotted with like, these shiny white stars. That's my little bro, Kian. We were talking outside my family cottage where we go during the summer, and we could see tons and tons of stars. I love being away from the city and just looking up at the sky at night. And if you've listened to this podcast, you know I love learning about what's out there in the universe. So what do you think? Do you think there's like other people up there? Other aliens? Huh. It's an interesting question because I think like, I think yes, because considering how big like the universe is and considering that like humankind, our civilization, it's pretty like young when you look at the span of the earth. I think there's, it's most likely there's some, there's a lot of other life out there. So. If, I mean, if you think that there are aliens, what do you think they would be like? You think there's like another Kian and Thai alien that's looking from the stars and trying to ask about us? I'd say there's probably there's probably some aliens that are kind of similar to like us as humans. Maybe like they have like similar societies or civilizations or they think kind of similar. But I also think some of the aliens out there, if there is any, could just be so like vastly different and complex. Like one thing that comes to mind when I think of aliens is jellyfish. Because if I didn't know that like jellyfish were part of the earth, they live here, I would think that they're definitely an alien because they're just nothing like anything else. They're just so different to so many things we have here on the planet. So are there weird jellyfish aliens on another planet somewhere? Or maybe an alien version of me and Kian? Life comes in all shapes and sizes, right? How do we look for life in a universe that's just so big? Is there anything out there at all? Ty asks why. I'm Ty, and this is my podcast, Ty Asks Why. There's so many good questions out there that you just really want to have answered. How do we fix recycling? Why do we laugh? How reliable are our memories? What can I do when I'm anxious? And are we alone in the universe? People have been wondering for a long, long time what's up there in the sky and whether anything else is looking back at us. Some historians say people were wondering about aliens in the Middle Ages, back when Earth was still considered to be the center of everything. I know that when I talk about aliens, a lot of us will think of E.T. or long-fingered, gangly green things with huge eyes saying, We come in peace, and their UFOs flying around. Even the Pentagon in the U.S. is taking UFOs seriously, which is pretty wild. 
This morning, a report that the government cannot explain those mysterious objects caught on video by the military. From an upside-down pyramid-like object hovering above a Navy destroyer, to cylindrical spheres disappearing into the ocean, to video allegedly... The thing is, though, we don't actually know if those are aliens or not. It could be new top-secret science most of the world doesn't know about yet, or missions from countries that are super secretive. But that doesn't mean life isn't out there. The trouble with finding life out in space, besides the fact that everything is so spread out, is that we only have one example to follow. Earth. And we don't even really know how life formed here yet. So before we explore space to see if we have any alien cousins, we might actually need to start right here on Earth. My name is Nathalie Cabral. Um, I am an astrobiologist, a scientist, planetary scientist, and I am also the director of research at the SETI Institute. In case you didn't know, SETI stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. One of the main things Natalie studies in her work is teeny tiny life, something called microbes. So microbial life is the simplest of life. We are more used to interact with the complex life, which are animals of, uh, of all kinds. But for the longest time on Earth, life stayed simple. Uh, the oldest one on Earth is what we call a, a green or blue algae, a cyanobacteria. It's just one, one cell, that's all. It's, uh, you know, a few microns or a few tens of microns, which are uh, millions of a, a, a millimeter. So tiny, tiny, tiny. Yeah, they're the types of things where like you look at them in a microscope and it's those weird little uh, wiggly blobs that you see and stuff. Yeah, and some of them have, you know, filaments and, and, and other things. And, and the cool thing is that some of their coloring, what we call pigment, is the kind of stuff that stays inside the rocks way after those microbes are gone, which for us astrobiologists is good because that gives us something to look for when we are looking for life somewhere else. These tiny organisms outnumber us by, like, one to a jillion. They are way older than us, too. The oldest fossils date back to around 3.5 billion years ago. Remember that the Earth was only formed 4.5 billion years ago. So these microbes have been around for pretty much as long as the planet itself. And these little guys are found all over the place. Research in general has found microbial life right next to radioactive center, you know, uh, nuclear powers. Uh, they found them in hydrothermal spring, you know, like hot spring, bubbling close to 100 degrees C. Uh, we found them in the ice. We found them at the bottom of the ocean. But the coolest thing about that, when researchers found those and started to list the places where these microbes could survive, it happens so that many of these environments are very analogous to some of the environments we know in the solar system. Yeah, so it might seem like the Earth would be totally different from planets in our solar system, but there are actually places here that are pretty similar, like the Andes Mountains in Chile. That's where Natalie does a lot of her research. When you are at the altitude of the Andes, 
you are breathing in an atmosphere that it's about 40% or 48% only of what it is at sea level. Because it is so thin, then there is more of the sun radiation that gets to the surface. So for photosynthesis, this is good. Lots of energy for, you know, green algae and stuff like that. But it also brings the bad energy, shorter wavelengths. Then the Andes are special because they are very arid. You also have an incredibly interesting volcanic environment and desert environment. And this gives us a fantastic analogy to early Mars. Who'd have thought that the Andes are pretty similar to what Mars used to be like? So what I do there with my team is that I am studying all of the geology, mineralogy, and biology of this region to understand how microbial life is capable of adapting to conditions, environmental conditions that were those of early Mars. And what that does tell us is first, what are we looking for? So what type of microorganism, but also where? What kind of habitat they are living in? You know, rocks, sediment, what kind of structure they are building and what kind of evidence they are leaving behind. And this kind of work helps us build the right instruments with the right resolution, the right wavelength uh, to be looking for life on Mars. Natalie and her team are looking for what she calls the building blocks of life, the elements that make up life on Earth. These are carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, phosphorus, and sulfur. They're kind of like Lego bricks. They can combine in a whole bunch of different ways to make cool stuff. Natalie does a lot of work with exploration rovers on Mars, and they've found these building blocks of life there. But they still don't know yet whether or not they were put together in the right ways to create life or not. What they do know, though, is that there has been water on Mars in the past, and that's one of the main things scientists look for in the search for life, some good old H2O. A few years ago, some scientists discovered what they think are lakes under the surface of Mars. If there were microbes on Mars, that would be a really good place to look. But finding microbes underneath a whole bunch of rock on a planet that's almost 400 million kilometers away is kinda hard. And let's face it, it's not that exciting for the average person who's on the hunt for something, you know, a bit bigger. Like Kian. I think finding like tiny little bacteria on another planet, if they're like, oh my god, we have found aliens on other planets, and I'd be like, what, really? And it's like, yes, we have found small single-cell bacteria. I'd just be like, oh, that kind of sucks. Okay, I get that. Fair enough. Kian does not seem to be very blown away by these little microbes. But Natalie says they're really important to look for in the universe. They are our grand, 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 grand daddy and mummies. They are the stuff that's making the foundation of life on Earth. And, you know, they are still the closest to the origins of life. We need to study them to understand how they work, in what kind of environment they could have appeared, and what are they telling us about the origins of life. This is a fundamental of nature. 
nature always does a lot more of simple things than complex things. In the same way that nature builds always a lot more small things than big things. Say, for instance, you have many, many buttes, a little less hills, a little less mountains, and we have one Everest, right? And so the more we are going to find microbial life and the more abundant it is in the universe, the greater chance there is that we will one day meet complex advanced terrestrial extraterrestrial intelligence. So the little microbes might not be all that exciting, but if we find one of them out there, the better chance we'll have at finding the big guys. So then where do we look for the bigger guys? I'm Jacob Huck-Misra. I'm a senior research investigator at Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. Jacob is an astrobiologist like Natalie, but his research focuses on trying to find the complex extraterrestrial life that might be out there. In other words, the big guys. That means he's got to find the kind of places they would call home. We have the planets of the solar system that we can look at. And, and among the planets, there's also some large moons of uh, Jupiter and Saturn. And among those, Earth is really unique. But that doesn't necessarily mean that, that Earth is unique in the whole galaxy or universe. So how common are Earths? To figure that out, astronomers have to first understand what makes Earth so special and why it's such a good host for life. There are a few things that the Earth has going for it. It spins with a tilt that helps give us the seasons. It has tectonic plates and it's molten in the middle, which is why we get things like volcanoes and earthquakes. The Earth also has a magnetic field and an atmosphere. So astrobiologists like Jacob are sorting out which of these are totally essential for life. So we try not to say they have to be exactly like Earth, but we can at least think about, you know, what types of planets would be able to have something like lakes or oceans and have the water not boil off because it's too hot and not freeze over because it's too cold. That's what astronomers call the Goldilocks zone. Not too hot and not too cold. Just right. The way scientists figure out if a planet has got what it takes to host life is pretty cool. Stick with me here, because this is going to be some kind of mind-blowing stuff. First, astronomers need to understand the star the planet is orbiting around. And they can learn a ton of information about that star, just from the light it gives off. And it has to do with rainbows? So if you think about seeing a rainbow in the sky after a rain shower. What's going on with the rainbow is sunlight coming through the atmosphere, going through the raindrops, and the raindrop is acting like a prism. It's splitting the white light into colors, and that's showing us that the light from the sun has many different uh, components to it. Technically, what you're doing is you're putting a prism-like device on a telescope, and that's what we do with, with astronomy. It's called diffraction grating, and although that sounds technical, you've probably seen these things. Um, they sell them as party glasses, and 
they've got like they look clear but kind of reflective rainbow lenses and you put them on and you see colored lines everywhere so that's essentially what you're putting on a telescope it separates the light into its colors and if you point something like that at a star you can look at a star and tell what the star is made of okay i've got it so far these party glasses on their telescopes let astronomers look at a star and figure out what elements it's made up of. That's because each element, for example, oxygen and hydrogen and sulfur, have what scientists call a unique color signature. These colors create a rainbow, more or less. And then astronomers go from looking at stars to looking at the planets that orbit them. So if we want to understand what's in a planet's atmosphere, we want to do the same thing. But instead of looking at the star itself, you want to get the light that tells you information about what's in the planet's atmosphere. So scientists will be looking at this rainbow from, let's say, a oxygen-hydrogen-sulfur star. And then when the planet crosses in front of it, its atmosphere will filter out some of that light. So what comes into the telescope is a rainbow with a bunch of chunks missing. Kind of a splotchy rainbow. And those chunks correspond to different elements and compounds. So carbon dioxide leaves its own mark on a rainbow, and so do oxygen and methane. Astronomers have discovered some really cool planets this way, but they're looking for particular elements that would be on the planet if life was kicking around there. Those are called biosignatures. Oxygen and water vapor are on the list, and so is methane. But all three of those together? A lot of astrobiologists would call that the smoking gun for a biosignature. Not so fast. A biosignature is a nice piece of evidence, but seeing one doesn't guarantee that there's life there. A planet could be green and not have any plant life on it, or it could have oxygen in the atmosphere and nothing to breathe it. So Jacob is looking for something beyond biosignatures. He's looking for these things called technosignatures. And so a technosignature is something that we would observe uh, on an exoplanet that is evidence not just of biology, but of technology. Jacob is working on this project with NASA to come up with a list of technosignatures for astronomers to look for on planets. And so we could think about, you know, observing radio waves that come from an exoplanet or pollution in the atmosphere of an exoplanet that, that would only be from uh, industrial processes or a planet that's been terraformed to, to be more inhabitable using technology even though it otherwise would be frozen in cold. Pretty neat, right? Kian definitely thought so. You know, I think that's actually a really good idea because like I feel like if other alien life was searching for us and they use that technique, they could just see the satellites orbiting our planet and realize, hey, that's not natural. Something must have made that, right? But we could see, like, maybe gas compounds are just something weird coming out of the planet, and we'd be like, that's not natural. Something weird had a weird idea and made that weird thing. Yeah, and so those weird compounds might be something like nitrogen dioxide. We have that here on Earth, mainly as a byproduct of burning fossil fuels. There are also these things called chlorofluorocarbons that will linger in our atmosphere for a long time. If you see chlorofluorocarbons and radio signals coming from a planet, like, well, that's pretty clear evidence that there's technology there. 
And also, technosignatures could potentially last a whole lot longer than biosignatures. Long after humans have wiped ourselves off this planet, our space junk will still be around so aliens would know that we were once living here. But our biosignatures might not last much longer than we do. So, the big question. Is there life out there? So far, astronomers haven't come back with any evidence of life beyond our little blue dot. But basically, it has to be out there. Jacob told me something Jill Tarter said. She's a famous astronomer who used to run the SETI Institute. The amount of, of searching for technosignatures that we've done so far today is essentially like being out in the middle of the ocean in a boat. You take a drinking glass, you dunk it in the ocean, you ask yourself, are there any fish in the ocean? And then you look at the glass and it's just full of water and there's no fish. Now, have you proved that there's no fish in the ocean? Well, of course not. So basically, we just haven't checked enough space yet. Here's how Natalie Cabral thinks about it. This is a statistical game. And even if the chances that the bricks of life get together in the right way is remote, just because of the sheer number of galaxies, which are trillions of trillions of billions of galaxies in the universe, each of them containing hundreds of billions of stars, each of them containing four or more time planets, and a hundred times more habitable environments on moons. Do you really think this is possible that we are alone? Okay, but hold on. Those are huge odds. Astronomical even, if you'll allow my pun. So if it's such a sure thing that there's life out there, why haven't we found anything yet? Why don't we know if those UFOs that people claim to see are the real deal? Okay, we're gonna head upstairs. Great. I decided to go see Heidi White and ask her this question. She's an astronomer at the University of Toronto's Department of Astronomy and Astrophysics and the Dunlap Institute. You might remember her from season two when we talked about why space is so dark. To me, the question is not really like, is there life out there? But it must be, it must be out there. So then the question becomes, why is outer space so quiet? This is essentially the Fermi paradox. So the Fermi paradox says, if the probability that life exists is so high, why do we see no evidence of it? And there are, I mean, it's an unsolved question, it's a paradox, but, um, there have been a number of proposed solutions, but why do you think we see no concrete evidence for, for life? Why has no one reached out? I think maybe we don't have the right technology. If all the ways we were doing it was like a walkie-talkie, and it's like we're trying to like turn the dials and knobs and hear a tr transmission, I'm thinking like maybe, maybe the aliens are doing something similar, but just they're like on a different wavelength. So we just kind of both miss each other. And like maybe there's some sort of crazy tech that we haven't figured out how to use it instead of like trying to figure out light or sound waves. There's a whole other sense or something that they have that they're using to communicate with us or something. Q 
Kian had some thoughts about this as well. Maybe these other aliens, all they can think about is just like killing anything that opposes them. Maybe like like a massive world of just like bloodthirsty like warlords that just kill. Or maybe they're just, maybe they're really just kind of like scared and they just want to keep to themselves. They don't want to reach out to other people because they're worried that that might cause conflict. I don't know. I hope that that's not the reason we haven't found anything yet. One thing I keep wondering as we talk about this is, why do we care so much? Does it even matter if we're alone in the universe? Why keep up this crazy search for alien life? The answer that I really uh, uh, care about, it's this, uh, this, this concept called the Great Filter. So the Great Filter asks, where is the hardest step in evolution? to go from a planet that's dead to a planet that has technology which can be sustainable for an infinite period of time. Um, so where's that hard step? Is that hard step at the origin of life? It's really hard for life to start on a planet, but once life gets started, then life just takes hold. Or maybe the hardest step in evolution of, of a planetary system with life and technology is just ahead of where we are now. Maybe that's what we're dealing with, and that's why we are struggling with climate change and sustainable development and, and a host of other problems. Yeah, that's... It's a little bit eerie, because we're trying to, like, see if there's a hurdle we've hit or if there's a hurdle yet to come. Bum, bum, bum. Exactly. Heidi has a slightly different take. Even my own interest in astronomy and what's out there comes from, I think, an innate desire to know my place in the universe. And humanity has always looked up at the night sky and asked the same question. So I think there's a natural curiosity by humans to know where we fit in with this bigger picture and within the greater cosmos. I think another reason is because humans themselves are, we're inherently social creatures. We like to communicate with others. We like to be understood. And so in a more human sense, I think, we look to the stars to search for life because I think we want maybe even that recognition. And if there is something that exists and is intelligent like we are, we want to, that curiosity drives us to, to try and communicate with them. And we would hope, I think, in a general sense that if life's out there, that it's, it's curious and interested in, in meeting us too. Hmm, yeah. Alien life that's interested in meeting us? I mean, it seems like science fiction, but it would truly be a game changer. Who knows, maybe somewhere out there, there's a couple of jellyfish-shaped aliens, and maybe they're brothers too, just like me and Kian. And they're looking out at the stars in their night sky, and they're wondering, are we alone in the universe? Thank you so much for listening. I'm Ty Poole. The show is produced by Rachel Levy-McLaughlin, Eunice Kim, and Judy D. Gu. 
This podcast was created by Veronica Simmons. Graham McDonald is our sound designer. Additional mixing by Braden Alexander. The theme music is by Johnny Spence. Sound engineer is my father, Minuyan, and our location manager is my mom, Nikki Poole. Thanks to my brother, Keen for wondering about the vast universe with me. Love you, Kian. Today, my guests were Natalie Cabral, Jacob Huckmisra, and Heidi White. Thanks to the Dunlap Institute and the University of Toronto for having us back to campus to record part of the podcast. SK Robert is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Tina Verma, and the director of CBC Podcasts is Arup Narani. If you liked this episode, I'd love to hear from you. Please consider taking some time to rate and review Ty Asks Why on your favorite podcast app. It makes a big difference in helping others find the show. Till next time, I'm Ty. Keep asking why. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.